isn't a transaction involving new projects, any kind of construction that involves any kind of financing that isn't in renegotiation. So how long is this going to last? The general sense is that toward the end of 23, next year, we're going to start coming out of the downturn and back into an upturn. 24 should be a much better year than 23, and 25 much better still. So maybe this is the time to stay alive to 25. This is BizNow Reports. I'm Miriam Hall. And on this episode of the podcast, something a little different. Silverstein Properties' Larry Silverstein in conversation with Marianne Tai, the Tri-State CEO at CBRE. In this discussion, recorded live at BizNow's New York City Economic Forecast event on the 40th floor of Seven World Trade Center, Larry is sharing what he's learned in nearly 70 years of working in New York City real estate, developing the Trade Center twice before and after 9-11, and how he's made it through eight, maybe nine downturns. He's also discussing the current stalemate Silverstein is facing with a local Queen's Council member over the future of a massive residential development that Silverstein is planning in Astoria. It's shown me that building residential in New York has become more difficult than ever. And the more that we need housing, the more impossible it's become to accomplish it. I hope everyone realizes the enormous privilege of being here with Larry Silverstein this morning. Uh, Not only is he a legendary developer uh, owner, but he is officially now the best dressed man in New York real estate. Shows nobody has any taste around here. (laughs) So good morning all and good morning, Larry. Good morning, sweetheart. How are you? This is a hardcore real estate crowd, so I'm going to ask you, you told me that you've lived through eight downturns. Is that accurate? In, in no. no. No? Shows you you're too young. <laughs> Thanks. There's actually nine downturns, and the worst of them was the panic of 1897. That was, that, that was terrible. You have no idea how bad that was. After a while, you go through so many of these ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs, and you say to yourself, how am I going to muddle through this one? Right? It's a fascinating thing. But after you've been through the number of them that I have, and 91 years of age, I've been doing this for about 67, 68 years. I've been through a lot. The fascinating thing is, the city of New York always seems to come back bigger and better than ever. Think about what happened after 9-11. They said, you'll never, never, you'll never succeed. Don't waste your time. Insurance company said, we're not going to give you a dime, so don't spend your money. It's ridiculous. So five years of litigation, that's another story. But in any event, being around this period of time taught me a number of things. Never bet against New York. It always comes back bigger, better than ever. And look what's happened. Everybody said, you're going to fail. And we didn't fail. And so as I look around this incredible city of ours. Sure, there are problems. There are a ton of problems. But then again, we always seem to have a ton of problems. I don't ever remember a period of time where we didn't have a ton of problems. 
There were times that were better than others. So there was a guy by the name of Mike Bloomberg. He was damn fantastic as a mayor. Phenomenal mayor. First of all, good businessman. Second of all, good human being. Very, very extraordinarily charitable. Right? You don't have a clue as to the things he's done with his life that are spectacular and that improve the world for all of us. Right? But he was also one hell of a good mayor. Sadly, he was followed by Bill de Blasio. Disaster. Eight years of crummy, crummy leadership. No leadership at all. And now we're faced with Eric Adams, right? He's trying his damnedest. Will he succeed? He's sure gonna, he sure is trying. Does he have a whole mess of problems? Yes, because he's got a city council that's more to the left than maybe it should be. What we need is centrism in this country. We don't have it. And so the result is Eric Adams has his problems. Kathy Hochul has her problems. The good thing is they both tend to be centrist. So you may not agree with everything they do, but at least they're middle of the road people who are not too far to the left, not too far to the right. Eric Adams has a problem, however, among others, and that is he's got a city council that's all the way to the left. And centrism makes a big difference. So give him some time. I think he'll do the best he can under very difficult circumstances. And hopefully this, this city will improve significantly in the years immediately ahead of us. So in the, in the moment that we're in now, um, I think that we're all feeling very strongly um, that this moment is different than those that preceded us. I mean, the funny thing about having lived through a few of these, we all know this, is that they have common elements. The capital markets freeze up, people become hesitant to take any kind of risk, people predict doom, et cetera. The distinguishing feature, I think, of this moment is the work from home phenomenon. And the notion that um, we're gonna need a lot less uh, office space than we have, and that people are going to prefer uh, being at their kitchen table than they are coming into the office. And again, we've all seen these moments, at, you know, the 9-11 moment was no one will ever be in a tower again. Um, how do you feel about the threat from work from home? You know, Marianne, it's a, it is a threat, no question. <clears throat> do we have to deal with it? Yes. But I think if you just look around, we're in a difficult economic environment today. The job market is very strong in certain areas. It's not so strong in others. As the economy softens and weakens, people find themselves more concerned about their jobs more concerned about holding on to them, more concerned about being where the decisions are being made, more concerned about being seen by senior management. And as that increases with time, and it's gonna increase with time, I think we're gonna to begin to see people coming back to work to a greater extent than you're seeing today or that you saw yesterday. I think tomorrow, people become more and more concerned with their jobs and the safety of their jobs. 
issue number one. So with time, I think, by golly, that more and more people are going to start coming back to work because it's become evident some jobs do perfectly well from home. Others really need to be on site. You can't mentor from home. It doesn't work. You can't train people that way. And so increasingly, decisions need to be made not from home, because it's very difficult to do that. Decisions need to be made from the workplace. I think what we're seeing, however, is a different dynamic develop. There was a time when office buildings presented what, 250 feet per person. Then it went down to 200, then 150, then 100. So I don't know how low it got, but it, it got to the point where there's huge density that we designed into these floors. Right. So you've got special air, special, all, all kinds of special availabilities in terms of the, the environment in which we live on these floors. I suspect with time, we're going back to the 150, the 200, 250 square feet per person. In talking about how people want to work and live these days, I think that one of the reasons for the success of downtown has been the integration of the work and home environment. You know, anybody who remembers downtown before 9-11 remembers there were, you know, depending on how you measured it, 15,000 people who lived downtown. And clearly we're, uh, again, how you measure it, we're over 60, 65,000 people who live downtown today. Now, you and your company have gone deep into residential in this area. I'm fascinated, by the way, about your co-venture with Nathan Berman. You know, I, I was saying to a colleague uh, just this morning that every time you talk about converting a, an older building uh, to residential, somebody comes up with all the reasons why it can't be done. Um, except Nathan Berman, who somehow or another has figured out how to take any darn building and turn it into residential. So tell us about the origin of that conversion and really about uh, your Silverstein organization and how you're approaching residential. And I'm going to ask you about Queens too. There was a time, not dissimilar to what we're seeing today, where office floors that are not designed for office use um, become less attractive and less occupied. So 40,000 foot floors, 200 by 200, piece of cake. You see that? In constant need. And they rent, and they rent well, and they rent quickly. But you look at office floors that are down at 10,000 feet, 12,000 feet, 15,000 feet, where it's not square, where you don't have free open space, column free, where you've got to negotiate in order to put an occupant into occupancy. That makes any sense at all. And what you see, for the most part, is office floors that no longer work as office floors. So, what's happened? Increasingly, these buildings, these old office buildings, with its irregular floor shapes, studded with columns all over the place. They're being converted from office use to residential, to rental housing, 
in some cases, condo housing. As a matter of fact, if you walk down Wall Street from broad to water on the south side of the street, there is not an office building in that stretch that has not been converted to residential housing. So what you're gonna see is a large scale move toward the creation of something that's hugely important in the city of New York, rental housing. Affordable? No. Market rate? Yes. And those conversions can be accomplished in about maybe half the time, maybe two thirds of the time it takes to put up an office, uh, a, an apartment house from scratch. So A, you save in cost in producing the new apartment. B, the time frames in which it happens much more swift. And C, you could produce excellent quality residential old office buildings, forget about them. Conversion capabilities, tremendous. And Nathan is a good guy to do it with. He's probably the best. Yeah, I mean, what, what interests me is what, obviously you picked him for that reason, but to know what his secret sauce is that somehow or another others find so difficult uh, to do. So um, you're trying to do a serious ground up new, new residential in Queens right now. Yeah. Uh, involved in a process, I don't know if you saw this quote the other day from Deputy Mayor Maria Torres Springer, um, where she called the Euler process, the um, urban land use review process, Kafka-esque. I can't quite remember the last time a government official referred to a government process as Kafka-esque. Um, do you have thoughts to share with us, having been enduring this process? And, and also thoughts about what the political will is right now to try and create affordable housing, which I think if we asked everybody right now if this is a, a sort of one of the top three problems we're experiencing in the city, I can't imagine we wouldn't get almost universal support to that idea. So what has Queens taught you, et cetera? Well, it's, it's, it's shown me that building residential in New York has become more difficult than ever. And the more that we need housing, the more impossible it's become to accomplish it, especially when we're trying to provide affordable housing. So there are people out there who firmly believe the only kind of housing to build is 100% affordable. Now, if you have endless monetary resources and a drive to do good by the world, fine, dedicate yourself to building 100% affordable. It doesn't produce any kind of profitability it doesn't produce the motives that generate the desire to do this. End of day, in this particular location in Queens, it's a hell of a spot. It's a spot that's permeated with all kinds of poor, poor businesses, um, unattractive, low, unattractive storefronts, um, something that is, um, that is not enticing something that's really not, not a neighborhood that anybody really likes to live in or wants to live in. It desperately needs change. It desperately needs modification. So what we proposed, I think, 
once again, it's close to 3,000 units of housing of that amount. A huge amount of that, almost 900 units, is, is affordable. I mean, it's a huge number. And when you find you're talking with someone, a city council person, who says, not enough. I said, you know, if you can't finance it, there's no incentive to build it. So as a developer, I'll tell you, if you want 100% affordable, it's not financeable. It can't, it won't happen. If you want 50%, it won't happen, right? There was a time when it was 25% affordable, and then 30% affordable. We've also decided that if you're gonna build a community, build it right. Build it so everybody can really enjoy it. Put facilities into that community that make a difference for the people who live there. Don't just build to rent, build some quality into that facility so that people will come and enjoy living in this location. It's your city, it's our city, my city. I've lived here all my life. Important, there's a certain psyche that says, do the right thing by the people who are gonna live there. Make sure it's the best that you can afford to provide. And so, we've done that. We've designed all kinds of amenities into the location. And yet, there are people, there's one particular councilwoman who said, not enough. So when you're sitting and try to talk to her, um, the conversation doesn't end up going anywhere productive. What's gonna happen here? We've only been at this for about uh, five or six years. We have multiple millions of dollars invested in the effort. Will it result in new housing? Don't know. If she continues to hold for her position, nothing is gonna get built there, nothing. The affordable, At least we have the benefit of, of a mayor and a borough president who are in favor of the project. I mean, the question so here, is... Here we're fortunate to have that. Yeah. The question but, is how to get more folks on board with the whole concept of uh, reasonable exchange when it comes to building affordability. Well, in, in this case, um, if, if the resident council person decides to object then she could throw the entire project out the window. It's gonna happen. So will it happen? We don't know. But can it happen? Yes. I think we'll find out the next, I don't know, next month or so. In a moment, Larry on what the general consensus is on when we might see a turnaround and an ease off in interest rate hikes. We're getting close to the top. A time will come, maybe the first half of next year, when rates will start to turn down. The Fed will no longer be pushing three quarters of a point. Also, he discusses what kind of development he's eyeing off now. Are we gonna do two World Trade Center? Well. It's only been 17 years that CBRE has been your agent. So we're wondering uh, if you'll keep us employed uh, in, this, uh, in this task.
award-winning journalism covering the industry's biggest headlines delivered straight to your inbox. Oh, and it's completely free. Whether you're looking for news on multifamily or life sciences or the top headlines in your local market, we've got what you're looking for. Visit biznow.com slash subscribe. So just on touching on the subject of financing, uh, something that you and I have had a fair amount of conversation about in very recent times. Um, one of the things I think, again, people in our business are experiencing is uh, the caution. Everybody sort of is frozen at this moment. And at the same time, we're watching cap rates going up. And it's a different business model than our industry has had for the last 20, 25 years. And it's not the business model that you grew your business in, which was, uh, frankly, I think the way I think of it is let inflation build the value of the asset over time. What's your view on where we are in the world and, and whether it will change? It's certainly going to change who you go to to borrow money from, that's for sure. Um, but how is it going to change the business? It's changed the business. What you find is anybody who's in a transaction today that involves financing, and any transaction of any consequence involves financing, you're going to find rates have gone up exponentially. And you'll look at this and you say to yourself, does this make any sense? The result is there isn't a transaction involving new projects, any kind of construction that involves any kind of financing that isn't in renegotiation. Everything is being renegotiated uh, right across the board. So how long is this going to last? What's going to be the impact? Well, there was a guy, Sam Zell, <laughs> who in 1990, and we're in the middle of this terrible real estate recession in the United States, Sam Zell in 1990 said, stay alive to 95. <laughs> okay, so we've got the feds trying to gain control of inflation. And the heightened rates, the heightened rate structures, the continuous movement upward in rates continuing to happen. And will continue to continue to happen as long as inflation still continues, continues to build. But the general sense is that we're getting close to the top. A time will come, maybe the first half of next year, when rates will start to turn down. The Fed will no longer be pushing three quarters of a point in increases. And you're gonna feel the economy in certain areas soften further. With time, the normal things will begin to happen. As the economy softens, the Feds will begin to lower interest rates to prime the pump to start moving the economy into a better position, into a growth position. Rates will begin to soften, and as rates soften, development activity will pick up again. So, by when is this all gonna happen? Nobody really knows, but a lot of people have some second thoughts and third thoughts and fourth thoughts. You talk to them, talk to the banks, and we, we talk to 
senior people at the banks, at the major banks all the time. The general sense is that toward the end of, of uh, 23, next year, second quarter, uh, third quarter, fourth quarter, you're gonna see the beginnings of a renewal. We're gonna start coming out of the downturn and back into an upturn. 24 should be a much better year than 23, and 25 much better still. So maybe this is the time to say stay alive to 25. <laughs> uh, from your mouth to God's ear is all I can say. I agree. Yes, please. So that brings me to a subject near and dear to my heart. Are we going to do two World Trade Center? Well. It's only been 17 years that CBRE has been your agent. So we're wondering uh, if you will keep us employed uh, in, this, uh, in this task. We've only paid the Port Authority $377 million in ground rent. Other than that, nothing consequential. Are we going to do it? My recommendation is follow BizNow. They are really very good at tracking <laughs> development activity. And of course, if it's going to happen, chances are they'll know it. And they'll be among the first to know it. So just follow. Just listen to what they have to say. What I can tell you is working our damnedest to get it done. And so between the two of us, I suspect we're going to get it done. Well, we're it is amazing to me. We are on the site as a whole, and certainly in our, your buildings, over 90% uh, leased in, in a, a market. That, and, and we've said to do every building, we've had to send rent, rent records. So I'm looking forward to doing it again. You know, I want to give the, I, we have only a few minutes, I want to give the audience a moment to ask questions of but you if there are any don't questions. Don't I have a to right to ask you a question or you two? Can, you can ask me a question. Larry wanted to know how in the middle of all this uncertainty, large companies are still signing leases. Listen, any large company that I'm representing, including our own, I might add, I tell them this is the moment to make the deal. I mean, let's be very clear. If you have a business plan that you actually believe in, when do you want to make the deal? You want to do it when the market's soft, when you're the hero of the story. I mean, this, this is, I think about, in the most simple terms, CBRE's own lease at 200 Park. We have hit it right every time. I see my dear colleague, uh, Ken Meyerson here, who negotiated the brilliant lease that we are uh, enjoying right now. And I think that anyone knows, again, if you have clarity on the business plan, that's, that's the fundamental thing. And in terms of people who are still ambivalent as to how many people are coming back to the office, what I would say to them is that they have to, under, they have to think deeply about how their business is conducted. And if they're expecting their people to be back in two, three days a week, where are they putting them? And they're not, people are not going to be enthusiastic about coming back to the office to the point you made earlier. If you're jamming them into, you know, uh, the, what do they used to call those cubes? The Dilbert cubes. Who, is that really why you come back? Or personally, this is my bias. Personally, I want to come back and know where I'm sitting. I don't want to go see the concierge and say, hi, where am I today? Um, this does not motivate me uh, to come back. So I say all of those things to say, you need a certain level of clarity in your core business, and then you should strike at a moment when owners need you most and when you have the most bargaining power. So, so many of New York's office buildings are 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years of age, right? How do you envision the city 
going forward? How do you envision change in that regard? What direction do you think we should be taking? Can, can I tell you that we, we have a template that we actually know that works. And I was thinking about it the other day. I was over in the theater district, and the first people to do this smart, this is going back when uh, there was, in the 70s, when there was a crisis there. They got uh, the city to agree to allow them to float the air rights over the district um, that goes up to 57th Street. I think it goes down to 40th Street. I think it's between Broadway and 8th, maybe Broadway and 9th. Something like that is the theater district. And the city you know, wanted to share in the fee structure when they sold the air rights. If you walk along 8th Avenue today, all of that residential building, all of the diversity that is now sort of anchoring the theater district, all came from floating the air rights. And to me, it was such a good trade, because here was the trade. You've got landmark structures that have air rights above them that you can't um, build on those buildings. And you have the immense expense of supporting a landmark. You, you know, people always think of it as such a blessing. We're going to landmark your structure, like, great. Uh, because with it, con the concomitant is, you're going to have to take care of an old building in perpetuity. But by enabling these theaters to actually benefit from the sale of the landmarks, part of the deal was there had to be a fund for preservation. So there are, what, 41 theaters on Broadway. Those theaters are in better shape today physically because of that, but the neighborhood is in better shape. You used to take your life in your hands when you crossed 8th Avenue, et cetera, and now it's a perfectly lovely residential district. That is what's happening in Midtown East as well because we were able, I always say, de Blasio did a couple of things really right, um, including early, ch early childhood, you know, pre-K for, for all. But the other thing he did is he got Midtown East rezoning through. And the premise of Midtown East rezoning was simply this. The, the district was frozen. It's our most valuable business district in terms of taxes collected there. You do a heat map of um, rent, uh, excuse me, tax collection in New York City, and it's bright red right in, in the center of the business district there. But the buildings, because of a, a fluke in the 1961 zoning, were frozen because so many of them were overbuilt. The rezoning just walked down the street now. We just uh, saw the opening of 425 Park, which alas, missed Midtown East rezoning and had a very long run up because it had to keep, save 25% of the steel. But right next to it, we see demolition beginning for a new building there. Obviously, we see Chase going up, which will be amazing. And I think that we're fully expecting to see another, a number of other buildings as well. And the benefit here, again, uh, I'm a trustee of St. Patrick's. I can tell you that um, the endowment that will come from the sale of St. Patrick's 1.1 million square feet of air rights is going to keep that building in wonderful shape forever. The same is true with St. Bart's, Central Synagogue, et cetera, and, and all of us, all of the landmarks who contributed uh, their air rights to this. So there is a template, and there are a lot of landmark buildings. I think the statistic in, in, um, in Manhattan is 29.6% of all buildings are either landmarked or in a landmark district. This is an opportunity. And the way to, to make, you know, again, we don't have vacant land. The way to make buildings young again is to build. I don't have to tell that to Larry Silverstein, who's been doing this a very long time. Marianne, thank you. That's Larry Silverstein of Silverstein Properties. He was speaking there with Marianne Tai at our New York City Economic Forecast event at Seven World Trade. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.